My name is Mark Absher. Uh, I'm really happy if you're here visiting with us. I mean, I'm happy that everybody is here, but I'd like to ex extend a special invitation to you if this is your first time here today. Uh, at the end of our assembly, I'd really love a chance to meet you and for you to have a chance to meet me. And as you go through that door right there at the end of this aisle and look to the right, there's a big green wall that says, Welcome. And I'll be the short guy with the white shirt standing against that green wall. Take a second and come by and, and meet me. I'd, I'd love to meet you. And um, if you have any questions about our church, we'd be happy to, to answer those questions right then and there. I mean, I'm excited about our church. I, I, I love our church. I'm excited about our church family and not just the fellowship that we have in, in, inside the family, but what we do for the community and what we're trying to do for the world. And if you are not a Christian or maybe have some questions on what it means to become a Christian or a disciple of Jesus, we'd love to, to talk to you about that. Uh, if you'd like to become a member of our church family, it's very, very simple. Just, you know, send us an email or see me out there. Or there's a little card. I, you know, I'm 60 and I forget things all the time now. Uh, there's a little card that you can fill out and there's kind of out there in the family room as well. But we want you to be a part of what God is doing in this church family, in this San Antonio state of Texas, United States, in the world at large. And if you would like some more information on that or just to get to know each other, meet me out there after the assembly. Also, for everyone here this morning, and for those that are streaming as well, you can find inside the insert, this insert inside of the bulletin. On one side of it, it has MPG, miles per gallon, is not what that stands for. It stands for Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. And it's a way that you can take the message this morning and take it a little bit further down the road. On the other side of it is a sermon outline we're going to use for the message today. But you can fill in the blanks and make some notes. And if you're streaming right now, you can find all of that information I just talked about on the website. Um, we are going to begin a new series on grace. As you know, this time of year, we typically uh, merge our sermon series and our adult Bible classes into the same subject. The material is not the same, so it's not a continual repeat, but it's something that we do as a church family to make sure that some of these important things, like grace, are things that we're, we're hearing the same message and, we're, and we're, we're hearing the same text and teaching from the Bible. Uh, some years ago, about 27 years ago, Ellen and I had just returned from Brazil as missionaries and were living in another state starting a new ministry. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to get to know uh, our new church family. And so what we would do, it was a small college town, and we would invite people out. You know, on Sunday we'd invite them to meet us for coffee sometime that week. It was a college town, had a lot of really great, cool coffee places, and it just made for great conversation, great coffee two winners. And so this one particular Sunday morning, Ellen and I met a, a young woman about our age, and we invited her to meet us for coffee. Thursday rolls around that afternoon. We meet at the, the cool coffee shop. We have a great conversation. We talked for about an hour, hour and a half, some, something like that. Found out that she was a, uh, a lifer for that particular church. I mean, it's a church she had grown up in. And as I stood up and Ellen stood up to leave, she had this really uh, kind of strange look on her face. And she says, is that all? And I said, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we just wanted to kind of have a chance to get to know you and to meet you. And 
to hear about your family and all of that. Uh, were you expecting something else? And she goes, you're a preacher. I figured the only reason that you want to have coffee with me is because I had done something wrong and you wanted to yell at me. And I'm thinking, in a public place? <laughs> Which I did not say, but I'm thinking it. At that point, I still had filters. And I didn't say it, but I just said, no, we just, no, sweetheart, we just wanted to get to know you. Uh, we, we've never met you. We just, you know, we, we just wanted to know a little bit about you. And she said, cool. And as I'm getting into the car, I go, man, Ellen, that was, that was a little weird. I, I guess it kind of caught me off guard. And she said, don't worry about it. She doesn't know you. She doesn't know you. I sometimes wonder, you know, I think people who don't know God, or even some of the people who do know God, have a default view of God that goes like this. God is out to get me. God is out to get me. He's this cosmic judge. He's out to get me. And he's just waiting for me to mess up so he can zap me. Now, quite frankly, church, that is one of the reasons why we need to study grace. Because the doctrine of grace says the complete opposite. God is not out to get you. God is for you. That is the most basic understanding of the doctrine of grace. God is not out to get you. God is for you. And that's one of the reasons why we as disciples of Jesus who have been entrusted with the gospel and who have experienced God's grace must have an ever-deepening and an ever-enriching uh, enriched understanding of the doctrine of grace. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, to grow in grace. Enough of being an inch deep and a mile wide when it comes to grace. We need... We need to understand that when, when, when we look at God, we see grace. And vice versa. I mean, the flip side of that coin is true. When we look at grace, we see God. Or for those who like to hashtag something, hashtag this. Hashtag this. Hashtag no God, no grace. Or flip it. Hashtag no grace, no God. And again, that's why we're doing this series of sermons and Bible classes on grace. And I want to start this morning by giving us, uh, you know, helping us to understand some of the subtle differences between some of these important words that we find in the Bible. I want to start with three of them. The first one is this word justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve. And grace is is getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And mercy, mercy or excuse me, grace is getting what you don't deserve. I'll give you an example. Driving down the road 70 miles an hour and you realize it's a 50 mile an hour zone. Next thing you know, you see this in your, in, in your back, in your, your uh, rearview mirror, and you pull over, and you're a little bit nervous because you don't know what to expect. If the police officer gets out of the car and walks up to the window, you roll it down, hand him the driver's license, proof of insurance, he goes back to the car, comes up, gives you a ticket, you sign it, he breaks off you know, the little receipt of it, tells you to, to slow down, but you're free to go, that's justice. You got what you deserved. Doing 70 and a 50, you got a ticket, that's justice. But mercy is different. If he walks up, 
And he, you roll down the window, and you spend a little time talking to him, and he says, you know what, I'm not going to give you a ticket, I'm just going to give you a warning. No ticket, warning, slow it down, slow it down, but you're free to go. That's mercy. You're not getting what you deserve, which is a ticket. But if you see that in your rearview mirror, and you pull off the side of the road, and a cop comes up to the, uh, to the window, and you roll the window down, and he hands you a Krispy Kreme donut and a cup of coffee, that is grace, because you are getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, quite frankly, friends, you know, grace is very simple to define in terms of just you know, a one-word definition. The word grace simply means gift. But by definition, a gift is something that you can't earn. It's not something that you deserve. A gift, by definition, means something that is not earned. When we think about something that's earned, I mean, that means paychecks and wages, right? And when we think of paychecks and wages, what we're thinking about are equivalents. Think about the minimum, the federal minimum wage right now is like seven and a quarter. It's different in other states, but the federal minimum wage is seven and a quarter, and it's about equivalence. If you work one hour, you get this minimum wage. Again, in some states it's different, but it's about equivalence. You work one hour, you deserve $7.25. But God's grace, which is God's gift, does not have an equivalent. God's grace, God's gift, does not have an equivalent. God's grace is about getting what we don't deserve. And to get us going, sort of a jumping off place for this study, I want to give you a statement that I'm going to repeat at the end just to get our minds going about grace and our relationship with it. And the statement is this, human beings have never experienced a day in their life that they did not experience God's grace. I'll say it again. Humans have never experienced a day in their life that they did not experience God's grace. In other words, as a human being alive on planet Earth, there is not a day that goes by that you are not receiving a daily dose of God's grace. Never once did your eyes see the light of day. Never once with your, your lungs filling with oxygen. Never once with your feet being able to stay on the ground did you not experience God's grace. Now, again, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 in creation in just a second. But to get our minds kind of thinking in the right direction, I want to give you a picture or a sort of a metaphor to think about. And it involves two people who fall in love and they get married. Two people fall in love. They commit to each other in love. And in committing to each other in love, it's not long before that love brings a baby into the world. Before, and that's the key preposition, before that baby is born, this couple creates this really cool place where that baby can do three things. It can grow, it can flourish, and it's safe. And I can't count because I'm going to give you a fourth one. And that baby feels love, even though it may not have the abstract thought to be able to understand love. It's going to experience love in that place. They do all of this. I mean, it takes time and effort. 
They do all of this with great care. And guess what they're doing? They're choosing a theme and colors and fabrics and furniture and toys. And they're spending money to buy all this stuff. And they're spending time putting it all together. And again, here's the thing. They're doing all of this in the creating of this nursery before the baby is born. Now, let's leave that image just for a second and think about this. Before, there was a you and a me. Before there was a planet Earth, before there was a creation, before there was a heavens and earth and everything in between, before there was any of that, there was a trinity. The trinity is not a biblical word, even though we hear it all the time, but it was coined to describe the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, the word trinity, it's a Latin word, and it means something like threeness. God, Son, and, and, and Spirit exist as one. Now, the, the, the mystery of the Incarnation and the mystery of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, existing as one, is a great, great, infinite mystery that we, with our finite minds, at least in this life, are not going to fully comprehend. But think about these scriptures. The Trinity is about this, this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in which they are existing and relating with one another in harmony and in peace and in love. Think about Matthew chapter 3, the very uh, end of that chapter. Jesus is baptized. This is God the Son has incarnated Jesus on earth. He's baptized as he comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit comes down as a dove and a voice. The voice of God the Father says, This is my Son, whom I, what? Whom I love. In Him I am well pleased. And then you go a couple of years down the road to John chapter 17, the last prayer, one of the last prayers that Jesus prays before his crucifixion. And he's praying to God the Father, and he says in verse 24, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit existed in love. That is how they related to one another, peace, harmony, and love, which brings up an important an important fact about creation. God does not create the heavens and the earth because God is lonely. No, God is love. God creates because, as 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, God is love, and love produces and creates. So we go to Genesis chapter 1, and we have this trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who in love are creating. And Genesis chapter 1 is not first and foremost this scientific declaration, as it is a description of how a loving and crea creating God has brought all that we know into existence. So day one, light separated from darkness. Day two, there's the sky now. There is an up there and a down here. Day three, dry land and vegetation. And I want to stop here just for a second. I mean, all of these days of creation are incredibly miraculous and mind-boggling. But just for a second, think about dry land and especially the vegetation. I mean, God could have given us food. He could have given us an apple, and that's all we need. We just have an apple. You get hungry, you eat an apple. 
When you think about dinner, you think about an apple. When you think about lunch, you think about an apple because that's all there is, and it's all you need. It's just an apple. It sustains life. But that's not what God does. God creates a heavens, uh, uh, an earth, the heavens and the earth, everything in between, like this nursery that this couple who bringing a child in the world creates a nursery. There's just all this variety. All of a sudden, there's pineapples and onions and jalapeno peppers and pecans and, and, and teas and coffee beans. I mean, there's just all this stuff. And it's not just to sustain life, but all of this is here as a blessing. It's, it's, it's a way of, of, of giving us pleasure, not, not just to exist, but to flourish and to thrive and to enjoy. And then we go to day four, and all of a sudden there are these gigantic night lights at night and a gigantic light to light up you know, the day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on, on day five, birds and fish. And day six, animals and humans. And at the end, and you know the story, right? In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, at the end of each day, God looks at what he created that day, and what does he say? This is good. He actually says tov in Hebrew. But what does that mean? Now, does it mean that creation is good in a moral sense you know maybe but you know it's hard to say creation you know it's land and and you know maybe maybe not so much good in the moral sense it means good in the sense of the way that god wanted it to be it's good in the sense that it is exactly what god intends it to be and wants it to be and as we read the psalms we also begin to understand that it's good in the sense that it does, that it acts, that it exists exactly the way that God intends it to exist and wants it to exist. There is, when you look at creation, there is a beauty and a vitality and this unstoppable power to grow in nature. I mean, nature is this force. I read a book several years ago, a Pulitzer Prize winning book, a Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. It is one of the most absolutely stunning books on creation you will ever read. And if you want to just love just the beauty of the earth and the power of the earth and the fertility of the earth and just writing from a Christian standpoint, this is the book to read. More recently, Ellen and I have watched this show, Will Smith on uh, Disney+, Plus. Welcome to Earth. And you just watch... What is on this TV show from light to sound to, to movement to just all the different aspects of creation. And you just walk away going, my goodness, I live in the most beautiful, beautiful place I could ever imagine. But here's the thing about the goodness of creation. Creation is good because the ones who bear the image of God. By the way, who bear the image of God? If you bear the image of God, raise your hand. That's everybody. Creation is good because the ones who bear the image of God, that that is, humans, will be able to exist and flourish and thrive in it. Just like a baby in a nursery, except on a gigantic cosmic scale. And so God, in Genesis 1.27, created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And what did God do next? God 
Let's say it together. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All of this creation was created before humans arrived on the scene. In other words, we did absolutely nothing to deserve this incredible and vibrant and beautiful creation except to come into existence. Just like a baby through grace receives this beautiful nursery in which to grow and to thrive and to, and to be nurtured. But then the story of creation goes on, does it not? I mean, God looks down on the man, and he sees the man's loneliness, and he sees that in his aloneness that it's not tov, it's not good. Man, in God's eyes, doesn't have someone to be one with, like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one. In fact, when he creates the woman... At the end of chapter 2, Moses says, A man shall leave his husband, his man, a man, I'll get it right. I mean, the Bible's my life. I've got it memorized, right? <laughs> a man shall leave his father and mother. Those are the words I'm looking for. That's the relationship I'm looking for. And he shall leave his mother and father and be united or cleave to his wife. The Hebrew word devak actually means to be glued together. And the two shall become one flesh. And so God creates woman. And woman comes into being, comes into existence as a grace, as a gift to men. We might even say men don't deserve women. You know, this happened at the Aether. I thought the women would say, Amen. <laughs> Let's do it again. We might even say men don't deserve women. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, think about all of this that God has created that we didn't earn. We don't deserve it. We didn't work for it. He just creates it because He's a God of love, and it's grace, a gift. And when you think about the earth and how God has created to bless us physically and to bless us with our emotional needs, this is why we say humans have never experienced a day in their life that they did not experience God's grace. Grace is, is as a doctrine, can never really be adequately put into one simple little sentence. And so I'm not trying to do that right now, but I do want to give you a starting point, a very simple starting point. We'll call it a definition for grace. Grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. God's goodness for the good of humans. And, you know, grace is God's goodness. However we need to define goodness, whatever goodness means for the good, however that might be in reality for humans. I mean, when we think about grace, we've got to stop thinking about it one-dimensionally, that it only has to do about our salvation. That's why we have to grow in grace. Now, in spite of, you know, everything that we see, we know theologically that God from day one has been presenting His gift, His grace to human beings. So what is our response? In light of this, what do we do? In spite of this, how do we live? 
you say thank you. Gratitude is beautiful, is it not? Ingratitude is ugly, ugly, ugly. You hand somebody a gift and, you know, something that you've spent some time on, you thought about it, you spent some money on it, you bought it, you wrapped it, you give it. You know, you're gracing this person's life with a gift. They didn't deserve it. You're only doing it because you like them or you love them something. You want to you bless their life. And then they take it and they set it aside and they keep on doing what they were doing. Or they, you give them a gift and they open it and they, and they go and put it down. Or you give it to them and you say, you know, don't open it just yet. If you open it, I'll be embarrassed. And you never hear from them. I mean, ingratitude is ugly, ugly, ugly. And quite frankly, folks, we are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. We have both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures that tell us about the vast expanse and depth of God's love, His grace to us. Ingratitude is completely out of the character of a Christian in light of our knowledge of God and things He was doing before you and I were even born. In other words, as disciples of Jesus, our attitude is gratitude. That's not to say that there are bad days. There are bad days, and the world can be a pretty rough place and a mean place to live at times. But we understand that there is, there is a God that sometimes who is invisible to us, but we know that when we see creation, we see in creation a demonstration of His power and His nature and, and his character and of his grace and his love for human beings in providing a place that I can breathe. My feet stay on the ground because of gravity. There is food to eat and not just food to eat, but there is food to enjoy. And there is people in my life and that this life has been built by God as a grace. And that's why the, the muttering and the murmuring against God from the people who know God is just always disastrous. You have throughout the Old Testament the stories of people who have just seen firsthand God leading them through the desert, delivering them from Egypt, and they're muttering and they're murmuring and murmuring and muttering against God. And God is going, what in the world have I done to deserve this? All I've done is bless, 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 and all they can do is find fault. They can't see the good. They can't see the grace. Creation is a reminder that we are saturated with it as human beings. The air we breathe is gracious. The life we have is because of grace. And that's why Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica that's struggling with what it means to live in the world. He says, rejoice always. Pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I'm so excited that we're going to be thinking about grace. And, you know, the jumping off point for us today is, you know, there's just not a day that we live that we don't experience God's grace. And we understand that God's grace is His goodness, that when it is applied to our life, it is for our good. And that goes beyond salvation, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But if there's a way that we can minister to you today, something that we can pray about, something that, that, that uh, maybe you're facing a really tough decision, you need some wisdom or something. Maybe you've decided that because of God's grace, you want to be a follower of Jesus, become his disciple. Any of these, or for all of these,
Come down to the front and talk to our shepherds as we stand and praise God together.